Hi, my name is Deborah Ogden and I would like to welcome you to this third season of On Brand With. The idea behind this podcast has always been to bring you into my world of personal brand and impact and hopefully bring it to life through the experiences and stories of me and my guests. One of the things I've learned over the years is that we all have a story to tell and over the coming episodes I'll be chatting to some more people that I know and admire and some that I don't know and I'll be asking them to share their stories and how they use their personal brands to really make an impact. We'll be exploring what best practice looks like in the real world. So let's begin. My guest today brings together two of my favourite things, professional sport and the principles of high performance that can be translated to benefit us as business people and individuals in our everyday life. My guest is Marius Barnard. He is currently working as an executive coach and working with senior executives and professional athletes and sports people to achieve their full potential. He himself is a former professional tennis player and has played many of the top players in the game, including notable victories against Roger Federer, personal favourite, uh, Andy Roddick, Marit Safin and Goran Ivanisevic. He's won six tour titles and reached the quarterfinals of Wimbledon and the Australian Open. But it's fascinating because Marius shares that the match that perhaps had the most impact on him as an individual was a young player in a team tournament when he lost no less than 17 match points. Today, Marius coaches and is a professional speaker, sharing what he learnt in that high-pressure environment on the court, including that day. And this is combined with his extensive studies in business psychology and management. And I caught up with him last week between his tennis coaching at David Lloyd Centre in York and full disclosure here, we recorded this um, in an air-conditioned aerobic studio with the microphones balanced on a chair between us because it was 28 degrees outside, it was absolutely baking in the sunshine. So I hope you enjoy this, what I found a fascinating conversation. just saying before we came on air Marius was asking me what, what what's the conversation going to be is it going to be about brand and I said I'd really just like to talk about how you've got to where you are so I suppose starting way back your first love of tennis yeah no I started uh, quite young and uh, growing up in a sporty family my dad was really a tennis enthusiast he started a bit late uh, at, at university but sort of played every week and and so we followed them at the tennis clubs and uh, you know we started playing uh, but uh, also uh, strong in the community the, the the tennis scene so we played at school we played at the club but also I've got my, my brothers about three years older than me we used to play together from a young age so uh, and, and playing matches really from a, a, a young age at school uh, organized but I also played ru- a lot of rugby 
and that was really my first passion was uh, playing rugby yeah. and, um, it, and so a sporty background and um, really enjoying competitive sport as well yeah. yeah so it's not a local accent no no um, I thought I might have lost it after 20 years in York but uh, no it's still still there uh, maybe not as strong as it used to be so where did you grow up so I uh, grew up in uh, just outside Cape Town in a sort of suburb called uh, uh, Belleville and um, yeah that's where I went to school and, and really tennis was really encouraged at school uh, we played a lot of matches even in high school people actually came from distance to join our school because of the strength of the tennis and um, you know no scholarships or anything like that but just uh, and so I was fortunate that uh, in my road there was actually another player who was uh, he ended up being a top 100 singles player and he was also you know top 10 doubles player so um, really two or three players in that club that were uh, world-class one is now um, David Nankin he's coaching in America uh, with the USDA and um, yeah so really fortunate and I think that was the thing that encouraged me. I was sort of dragged along because they, they decided to play tennis uh, professionally from a young age, probably about 11, 12, because okay. I went to the Orange Bowl in America. Whereas at that point, I was still focusing on rugby. And, but I really liked beating them when I came back, <laughs> if I could. <laughs> Most of the time I lost, but um, then uh, sort of, I, th I guess my, my move was made to, at the age of 16. That's when I transitioned from, from uh, playing tennis all the time, but really making tennis the only game. And there were a few pivotal moments uh, in my career that sort of, you know, channeled me in that direction. One was when um, these players I'm talking about, they were ahead of me in the junior rankings. They ended up playing in the adult tournament, the Sugar Circuit, at the age of 14, 15. Wow. And so they weren't in the junior tournament, so that allowed me to play in it. And I won all three. And so my ranking wasn't sort of a true reflection, but I ended up number one in the country, under 16. And then I sort of thought, okay, maybe I should, um, you know, make this uh, my main sport. And uh, yeah, and then a couple of years later, I, I, I won the National Grass Court Championship, which give me, gave me a, an air ticket and a, um, an entry into Junior Wimbledon. And that's right. really when I decided this, this is maybe what I'm going to do. So as somebody who has, um I mean, I love watching tennis, but honestly, the majority of the tennis I watch, like so many Brits, is yeah. Wimbledon. Yes. And um, is that a British thing, or is Wimbledon, as you're growing up in uh, outside Cape Town, was Wimbledon a name for you then as well? Yes, yeah, definitely, because it's so well publicised, mm. you know, and it's the biggest tournament in the world. And um, we, I remember listening to it on the radio and um, I remember watching Kevin Curran, a South African, playing Boris Becker in the finals. Uh, you know, as a family, we watched that together. My, my brothers came from where they were living to come watch it on that afternoon. So, yeah, it, it, it is something we, you aspire to. It's funny, isn't it, you say that because, um, and I come from a family that we've always watched cricket and football, but um, there are some really key moments in my life, and I've never thought about this before, that I can pinpoint, one of them being out in the States with my mum and dad, and it being a Bjorg McEnroe final, yes. and us getting out of the pool in the absolute 
blazing heat yeah. to watch the tennis. So it's funny how it, you know. Sort of where were you? Where were when you this when? Happened, you know, <laughs> yeah. when McEnroe behaved that badly against Connors or whatever. Yeah. yeah we all remember that. Yeah. So yeah, no, it sort of can define you those um, those finals and, and watching them. And it's also it's it's great when you know the whole family's there watching it together because you all can, you can relate to it. Yeah. And so I think that builds the passion a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and just on that as well, something that's not really occurred to me before, but in tennis, you tend to see people grow up in tennis, don't you? I'm just thinking of Emma Raducanu at the moment, but also somebody like Boris Becker, who's, you know, having a tough time, to say the least, yeah. at the moment. But we saw him at such a young age. And tennis, maybe it's because people often go into the media afterwards, but you see somebody like John McEnroe now yeah. that has developed as a person. Um, it's quite an interesting sport. I can't think of many other sports like that, that you see that development. Yeah, I think it's because it's an individual sport. It yeah. brings a lot of different aspects. The character building that, that I talk a lot about, uh, not just you know, competitive having to mm. win, but you know, from a young age at a club, meeting people, having to interact, having to make line calls, um, you know, uh, being exposed to somebody trying to cheat you. Mm. These things happen because you call your own lines. Yeah. And then, yeah, like you say, it's the sort of the timeline. Uh, these players, uh, you watch them and the spotlight's on them for hours when they're playing. And then they grow old and, and you see, I hear Sue Barker, I think it's the last Wimbledon this year. So mm. you see them sort of go through their whole life, don't you? Yeah, on, I mean, television. 30 years she's done, hasn't she? Yeah. Which is just remarkable. And she's become quite a part of that as well with yeah, some of has. the most... Um, moving uh, interviews afterwards because the height of the passion yeah. which again is another uh, I suppose transferable experience from sport and business that in that moment the, the heightened emotion yes yeah it is interesting you're talking about in that moment um, Johnny Bester had that brilliant hundred yesterday and he was talking about in the moment and and that's really that changed my tennis performance is I read the inner game of tennis and uh, as we know, that book sort of played a big role in coaching, mm -hmm. uh, business yes. coaching, you know, yeah. Timothy Galway. And it taught me three things, and, and it literally had, within two months, transformed my tennis game. Okay. And so the, the first thing was um, being in the moment, as you, as you mentioned there. So really focusing on just the process and what I had to do that very moment. Mm -hmm. And then taking that to the next point and thinking, what do I have to do here? And, and so not thinking ahead, because that was my downfall. Mm. I would get close to match point, and I would think ahead of the win, and the next person I'm going to play, etc. And my concentration would go, and I would get too nervous, and I would bottle it. Mm. And mm. Um, so that was the, the big thing. Also being more non-judgmental. You know, that was a big thing from the game, wasn't mm. it? Um, not judging yourself when you're making those mistakes, mm. and just going more in the flow, accepting it, moving on. And, and then positive self-talk, you know, the, you know tr changing that narrative. And I sort of I developed a model around that, changing your narrative over time. Realizing that you don't have to uh, remember all your experiences. You can mm. select the memories that you want to keep with you. Mm. And, and, and what is that narrative that you say to yourself? And what do you believe other people are saying about you? because that all plays into it and trying to use that to your benefit yeah. and so sort of mm -hmm. I was saying to myself what's the point of remembering 
those mistakes you made and, and mulling over them mm. because that's not going to help your narrative. So just trying to remember the things that are beneficial to you and, and taking that with you and hopefully building your confidence like that. Because <laughs> uh, on the tennis circuit, uh, if you don't have confidence, you, you really struggle. And uh, I mean, in, in business and in life, it's the same, isn't it? If you don't, if you don't believe you can do something, then uh, you're not going to even try. Yeah. So. There's a couple of things there. I mean, I was having this conversation with somebody the other day about self-belief. And um, I can remember when I was at Old Trafford at, at, at Lancashire County Cricket Club, some of the players there. And it was often the people that had that edge that you sort of thought, ooh, you know, it was just tipping over into an uncomfortable area yes. but that was that self-belief and that selfishness if you like that absolute focus of this is what I am here to do and um, and it was our role as admin yeah. to make sure that that was their focus so we took everything else away and I think I might have mentioned it on the podcast before I can remember Andrew Flintoff getting a lot of um, getting a bit of a hard time about not having taken his passport to the airport but actually he'd been with the club from such a young age that would all have been looked after because it was one less thing for him to worry about yeah. and therefore they become in this sort of yeah. bubble so there's that but also what you're saying and I know you and I have um, will come on to your coaching um, in a few minutes but you, you you've coached me and I've experienced your coaching and I smiled when you said about the non-judgmental but also that um, that looking back and how we remember things I was reading something um, a couple of weeks ago about that negative bias that we have but I'd not thought about it taking a step further um, I can't actually remember it was a it was a book on neuroscience and they were saying that we have this negative bias and we go and look back but actually our memory of that occasion is usually in our mind a lot worse than it actually was so yeah. we're not only going back and using a negative bias but actually making it worse than exactly. it was and I'll give you an example of how that sometimes happens it, when you've made a mistake in a certain area you mm. will think of the best person in that area to compare yourself to and then you say well, why can't I do it so and so can do it and you think that is their specialism yeah. why am I comparing myself to yeah. their specialism the, the, the sort of the height of mm. that and, yeah. and so that that's another way of how that bias is, is is just exaggerated isn't it and we three to five times more we remember our mistakes than when we get praise so, uh, so we have to rebalance that, yeah. and yeah. that's what uh, positive intelligence tries to do. Mm -hmm. So we, we we're trying to remember uh, or, or be positive three more times than be negative, because to, to, to sort of rebalance that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the positive intelligence is your coaching program. We'll come on to that in yeah. a second because I have this tendency to go off in so many yeah. different tangents right. on the <laughs> podcast. So you are sixteen, are you? You've got your ticket to Wimbledon. What happens? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's important to say what happened before that. As mm. I said, I had, had problems and I had 17 match points in a, in a match wow. and lost. And I was playing for my team, my Western province, and that really hit me hard. And I started doing some introspection. That's when I read the book. Okay. In a game. And then, grass court championships, 
two weeks later, three weeks later, and, and I won that with these new new methodology I had. So in such like, a short period uh, of time. Yeah, I'm trying to say it's probably about two months, I would yeah, say. So I was yeah. I was practicing them, but I was really in the zone. And and for some reason I just love playing on grass, maybe because I played a lot of rugby. I was diving around and, mm. and it was at the Wanderers Club in, in, mm. in Joburg. And uh, so, yeah, then I went to Wimbledon. And uh, Junior Wimbledon wasn't that great of an experience for us, uh, you know, playing-wise. Uh, I lost first round to Malavai Washington, who actually was a finalist uh, in the adult tournament years later. But um, didn't felt I played my best. We, we lost in the doubles against Courier and Stark, I think. Um, and, um, and this was with Pete Norville, who, you know, became, he won the world doubles, uh, you know, in Chennai, well, years later. So I had a good partner, uh, and we, we went on to win three tour events um, later on in our career. Uh, but yeah, it was a bit of a, a I wouldn't say it was easy. Mm. <laughs> and then after that, that year we were sponsored by our union, and so we had, had money behind us. But the, the two years later, I was on my own. Yeah. And so I had my doubles partner, and we traveled, and um, it was, um, yeah, it, it took quite a few years to to get going. Fortunately, I, I, I met my, my wife and, and I then based myself in the UK. Um, uh, I had a coach, Gordon Bird, who was helping me at that time. And so things started falling into place, but it, it wasn't easy. I think my first title on tour I won in 91, and I think I played Junior Wimbledon in 87, so it was sort of a four or five years later. Yeah. But interestingly, in that finals of the Kremlin Cup, I used the same methodology and I used it so well that when I won the match point, when I hit the winning shot, I didn't realize I'd won the match. Yeah. I actually turned to my partner and said, come on, next point. <laughs> and he, he ran over to me and said, we've won. Don't worry about the next point, we've won. It was sort of 10-8 in the tiebreaker in the, in, yeah, in the third. I love that. I, again, um, one of the things that I, I try and work on is, is sort of to fall in love with the process rather than that, you know, have the goal but fall in love with the process and that is exactly what you're yeah. talking about there, yeah, isn't definitely. it? Enjoying that. I've had players who had problems playing tiebreakers and we had to sort of get them convinced that, you know, I'm enjoying this. Even though there's the big stakes and I might lose, just enjoy, enjoy the excitement of it. You know, you might lose, but still enjoy the fact. That's why you're playing the game because it's you don't know what's going to happen. Is it going to be a win? Is it going to be, you know? And uh, so trying to get that mindset. And then after a while, it took a while, but just believing it and saying, I enjoyed tiebreakers. I enjoyed tiebreakers. And having that experience where you actually, the the intrigue of is it going to be a win or a loss? But I'm really fighting for every point. Then you can start enjoying it. But the, the problem I think we have is we hang so much onto the win. Yeah. And, and we know we lose in tennis, you lose a lot. Yeah. And in business, people lose a lot. You know? So I think there's a, a lot of parallels in that sense. And, and then how do you pick yourself up? And how, well, how do you learn from that? We learn more when we lose. Mm -hmm. So hopefully those lessons that you can learn along the way, because you have more introspection, more reflection, that will serve you for going forward. Yeah, um, so I, I've been talking to my soon-to-be 15-year-old son about this a couple of times over the last uh, week or so. So um, 
we had a wonderful trip to Wembley a couple of weeks ago. Oh, but right. as Huddersfield Town fans, we were on the wrong side of the oh. result. And it, it was interesting seeing my experience of it compared to Oscar's. So mm. I'd gone very much with an experience and it was about taking him to Wembley. And don't get me wrong, I wanted yeah. to win. Yeah. And um, there's none of the taking part in no, my no, mind. No, we, we've had that conversation <laughs> we have before. We've had that conversation. <laughs> and uh, very much wanted to win. Did I think Forrest deserved to go through beforehand? Probably I did. But anyway, we, we sat there and just before the match started, it occurred to me that there was going to be a football match because I'd got so involved in the event, if you like. And when what happened happened on 90 minutes and, and the whistle was blown, I sort of just resigned myself to it. And, and there were two things that really struck me that we were sat on the halfway line so we were only one block away from the forest fans and there was just a silence on one half that was deafening and that was actually more deafening than the wall of sound that was coming from my left hand side and then I turned to my son and he was just sat with his head in his hands (laughs) and there was just absolute devastation and I think it was just one of those moments that he, he just assumed in that wonderful way you do as, yeah, a, as, yeah. a, as, a, kid. as a kid that yeah. it was all going to be rosy. And it was saying, OK, let him have his moment, but where do we go from here? And we'd had, and I won't share it because it's, it's Oscar's story, to, you know, for him it's more personal, but he'd had a situation at school that was very similar um, quite recently and the parallels between the two of okay, what have we learnt from this? Where can we move forward? And he'll roll his eyes and say, oh, you're coaching me, Mum. Yeah, yeah. 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 that experience. And and you only get it when the stakes are so high and, like, really got to win. And then we have that attachment to the win and then we attach our self-worth to the win and then we just have to be a little bit careful that, Mm. um, you know, how we how we view that and uh, you know in in tennis you lose a lot a lot more Mm. than you win so um, you kind of have to get used to that from a young age and um, and then find a way and so the the, how I viewed it when I was playing professionally you know then then there's a financial uh, connotation to it as well uh, is that I knew that if I gave 100% in that match uh, and if I lost then you know, there's not more I could do. You know, just give 100% effort, concentration, focus, try my best, and um, if it's not meant, not meant to be, then it, it isn't. And, and there will be a next one. There's normally a next tournament, fairly. Yeah. And do you run your business? Do you run your, is your mindset of that on a daily basis? You know, if you can put your head on the pillow at night and know you've given you 100%. Exactly, then, exactly yeah. the same, right? You know, because you make mistakes, you you have regrets, and then you think, well, let's let's move on. It's not going to be beneficial to to sit and think about this for too long, and 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 then there's another opportunity, and you need to be ready. You know, the thing is, be ready for the next opportunity that comes along. Don't sit there and sulk and waste time on something that's just happened. We can't change the past. Once it's happened. Mm-hmm. It's, it's history and you move forward and, and you look for the next possibility or opportunity yeah. so um, yeah and it, it, it's, it's not easy to, to, to have that mindset but I think uh, with practice 
And if people want to make changes, we, we know how difficult it is to change behaviors. Mm -hmm. But if they really have a motivation to do that, they can do it. And does that have to be an internal motivation? Mostly. Mm, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's very difficult if people don't want to be yeah. doing something yeah. or don't want to be motivated to motivate them. Yeah. Uh, it's you finding their motivation yeah. and, and just shining a light on it and saying, that's the thing that really motivates you. Yeah. So if I was you, I would focus on that and use that to, 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 to change your behavior and to, you know, hopefully it'll lead to success. back to your your tennis what was your end game was it to be the best was it to win Wimbledon what, what yeah, was your end game interesting because I did set goals when I started playing uh, professionally quite early on and with no help of anybody um, mm. you know I think today there's there's a sort of a vision that uh, tennis players they have a coach they have a psychologist they've got a dietitian they've got and these guys are traveling with them whereas we did it all on our own yeah. so it's you and another guy and, and you're traveling maybe your doubles partner but then you play singles and you play against him and that's horrible yeah. to play yeah. against your best friend so um, you were out there is on that, your own is that really tough actually yeah. just to pick you up on that because you, you must I mean even you know the top stars they must get to know each other so well mm. yeah I, I, I wouldn't say you know, horrible is maybe a bit strong but uh, it's not nice playing your best friend when you're traveling together mm -hmm. and it, it's always a, a match below par because yeah. neither of you really enjoy it mm. and, and and you know each other's game so well mm -hmm. so you know how to trip them up and, yeah. you know uh, so uh, yeah I, I don't think that um, you, you watch the Williams sisters they often had terrible matches when they played yeah. each other interestingly the Bryan brothers when they grew up and played singles their parents always allowed and they rotated this allowed the other kid through they never played each other in, right. in competition okay. Yeah. They didn't. Uh, they didn't set that up. Yeah. yeah. You know, so they said, well, this time Bob's going to go through. Next week, um, Brian's sure going to go through, and, yeah. and, and so they never actually competed at that level. Yeah, I'd never thought about that because you, you know it, it's human nature. You would hope it's a very um, cool character that those that can put those human emotions to one yeah. side. Yeah, and, and that's what you have to do. That's yeah. what you have to do. You forget about it and you just play the game and, and you try and go out there and, and mm. win. So um, So but, what was that goal then? So my goal, okay, so I set goals and they were quite high. Mm. Um, and it wasn't to win one tournament. I had, I had a, a ranking goal. And um, it took me five years to hit my doubles ranking goal. And I never hit my singles ranking goal. Mm -hmm. I was sort of around 300 in the world, and I, obviously I wanted to play on that stage. But um, so th that was sort of my 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 goal. But vision-wise, it's just to to compete at the highest level mm -hmm. and really enjoy it and and do my best. That was sort of my my vision. And you know, I remember as a kid thinking about playing at the U.S. Open. I think, thought about playing at Wimbledon. I, you know, and night match at the US Open with a rowdy crowd <laughs> against you you know that, for some reason I, I really enjoyed that and in fact I had a match and it wasn't quite at the US Open it was in New Haven where I had a rowdy a rowdy New York crowd mm. ch uh, cheering against me mm. and it really motivated me and I played one of my best matches and uh, 
yeah, it is. It's quite it's funny. like the Djokovic, uh, yeah. Djokovic Federer situation, yeah, isn't you know, it? It's, so it's like, you know, what happens if, if McEnroe's family came to watch your match and they were really, <laughs> you know, sort of sledging you and, and how are you going to react to that? And yeah. sort of that really kind of for some strange reason, it, it, it motivates me. <laughs> yeah. So who have been, who, where are the moments for you? What have been, you know, if you were looking back on, on your tennis career, what were those pinnacle moments for you? What was the pinnacle? Winning moment? titles. Mm. Um, so I won Moscow, Rotterdam, uh, Newport, which is a really nice tournament on grass, um, quarterfinals of Wimbledon, quarterfinals of the Australian Open. Um, yeah, and then you look back and you go, well, I beat Federer, I beat um, Safin, um, Ivanisevic a few times. So it's sort of the big names. You know, sometimes they, they weren't at the top of the, they weren't number one at that point, but they yeah. then later on to become number one. So, you know, so that, still that, counts. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but yeah, I, I remember Rotterdam, I was just on fire. And, and funny enough, the, I played with David Adams, who was the guy that I had the 17 match points against when I was 17. So the guy almost traumatically buried my tennis career. He then became my partner in Rotterdam out of the blue. And we were just unbeatable. We went through the whole week and won the tournament. So. Had he remembered that? Um, I'm sure he would have. We, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've got pretty good memories, yeah, <laughs> especially yeah. if you're on the winning side. Yeah. In fact, in fact, he did remember it because I called him because when I'm going around now doing some talks, I don't want to get it wrong. So I thought, surely it couldn't have been 17. Maybe it was 13 or 11. <laughs> so I called him and I asked him and he, and he said 17 <laughs> so I don't know who counted but uh, anyway that was something that I was going to live with uh, and my teammates you know because I was playing for the team yeah. uh, they were just a little bit laughing but um, you know over lunch and we did manage to come back and win the, the overall tournament but uh, yeah no it was a bit of a mickey take but isn't that a great example you know you sort of say that could have been the moment that buried your career but actually it was that turning point and, yeah. and in those darkest moments whether it be business you know that we've just come through the pandemic and some people will have some of the darkest moments of their business their careers and it's about in those moments how we just find something that takes us to that next yes. level yes so we, we talk about the gift uh, First, the gift of power to overcome, mentally to over, overcome that situation. Then the gift of knowledge, you find some new knowledge. So like me, I, I went, I studied, I looked at Timothy Galway's book, I read it you know, from page one to the end, I was glued to it. I then went on to study business psychology because of that. Mm. While you were still playing? I was doing it while I was playing, yeah. Mm. One of the few mm. players that studied. Um, it took me a long time, I had eight years to get finish my career. Uh, but you know, I spread it out nicely yeah. so I didn't have to do too much. Um, and um, yeah, so and, and, and then the, the gift of sort of inspiration where you go pivot, as you said earlier, in mm. a different direction to overcome this obstacle and, yeah. and then you find a new way. So one of the questions that I always wonder when it comes to talking to people that have had a professional sports career is, and, and this I suppose is core to the work that I do is, how did you cope when it came to the end of your career with that shift in identity? Because in the normal world, we define ourselves so much yeah. by what we do, don't yeah, we? Yeah, we do. Um, I think I've always been fairly balanced mm -hmm. compared to some of the other players that I've uh, come mm -hmm. up against. Uh, and so I, I, I do art. I, I'm 
drawing, paintings, things like that. But I, I'd also studied, as I said, mm. business psychology, business management. And um, then I had something lined up for when I finished. So um, I was traveling, my daughter was four, and I thought uh, it's maybe time to, to, so she's going to school, mm. then you tie to school holidays and things like that. So I decided that that was time. And then I had a, a coaching job lined up straight after that. So, and that's why I've done coaching for 20 years. It started with tennis and you know, psychological coaching and things like that. So, mm. so I had a purpose. And, I, and, I, and, and that wasn't the be-all and end-all of my life to, mm. to win yeah. tennis matches. And, and do you wake up one morning and say, that's it, I'm stopping playing? Or do you have a plan? How, how did mm. it work for you? I did plan it a little bit. Yeah. I sort of, maybe the second last year, I thought um, this could be my last year. And, I, and then I did quite well. And then... <laughs> Then I, then I said, like, the la then the last year I had a few bad tournaments mm. in the beginning of the year. And then I set my goal as to, right, this is going to be yeah. my last year. I'm going to finish at the US Open. And, um, and I played well right up to the end. So, that, so that, was, that was quite enjoyable to finish on a high note. And yeah. I had a regular partner at that time when we won the previous year. We'd won some tournaments together. So, mm. so yeah, I planned it in that sense. But it wasn't a long-term plan. It was a sort of a, a two-year plan to wind it down a bit. And I, and I thought I was ready. Yeah. Then, then I did regret it a few years later when I when I saw other players <laughs> doing really well. I'm thinking, you know, I, I could have hung in there for a bit longer because we, we had a thing. You know, when Federer changed the rules of when do you retire because he was 39, and, and mm. I thought 33. I'm old. You know, I need to retire. Mm. <laughs> and then so other players came along and played beyond that. And and I want to talk. I want to make sure we've got time to talk about the co your coaching now. But who, who's your all-time great when it comes to tennis? Um, Interestingly, I, I really like John McEnroe, uh, even though I don't like the way he behaved, but mm. just the way he played, because uh, I was a, a net rusher, used to come mm. up to the net. Um, and then, I mean, Boris Becker was just, you, how could you not like all that energy and excitement and inspiration, you know, uh, to see him. But um, yeah, I think, I think McEnroe uh, sort of uh, influenced me for going to the net. Not the behaviour side. Yeah, but I think he's become. Talk about people changing their identity. You know what a great broadcaster yeah. he has become. Very interesting and, and really insightful. I think he, as a, a non-tennis player, watch. He seems to talk. He doesn't say the obvious. Yeah, and he's got the insight, and and he's not afraid to say things. And I think that helps. You know, he'll just say it as he sees it. So very authentic. And I don't know how comfortable you are talking about this, but um, just on the Becker thing, do you think it is, you know, how do you get yourself into such a situation? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know the details, no. uh, but uh, I could, I, I could visualise it in a way where if you're not financially orientated and, not, and you have other people handling your, your mm. money and... Um, then you buy this place and you buy that place. He had several marriages, um, you know, and he's paying uh, maintenance mm. and things like that. If you don't keep a track of it, you know, I could easily see how mm. you could, and then, and then you have to pay a, a massive tax bill and then you're yeah. scratching around. Trying, you know, so uh, some people can't believe it, but <laughs> I know how the cost of living is mm. quite high. Mm. And if you have properties all <laughs> around the world and people are looking after it and you're paying them, and, bef and, and, and also, if people that are advising you are not giving you good advice, then, then you could get mm. yourself into trouble. 
Yeah, to me there seems to be a naivety there. And again, you know, going back to my passport Freddie Flintoff story, you know, and I I could tell you many others as well, not just about him. But, um, you know, that naivety, but also that bubble that perhaps protected bubble. And you've got to remember, these guys trained all their life, all their living hours Mm. to be a a great tennis player. Mm. So that doesn't mean, that doesn't guarantee you that they're going to be smart in business (laughs) or, um, you know, that they, even as a commentator, some some do well, others don't do so well. You know, every every, um, walk of life has their unique um, sort of traits and and, and things you need to train yourself in. So, um, and if, if, if your advisors are giving you bad advice, then you could get yourself into trouble quite yeah. easily. Yeah, you only have to look at how Andy Murray has developed his public persona and how he's worked on that, don't you, over the, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer, and I suppose I would say this, having worked in, in the media in sport, but there is another side to being a sports person these days. Oh, and yeah. there is that public profile and there is that role model and the privilege that comes with it to, to um, communicate that oh, message. Yeah. But I think he has worked hard on that, but kept it authentic as well, which is what I, I think he's done incredibly well. Yeah. Um, so talk about positive intelligence then. So I know that you are continuing. I mean, we're actually recording today at um, the David Lloyd Centre where you, where you still coach tennis, but also you've developed this career into business uh, yes. performance and coaching. So, so tell me a little bit more about that. Um, yeah, I, I've been, again, you know, things happen and um, I, I started working with um, David Langford in tennis and, and he happened to be a professor in business coaching and uh, ex-dean at York and um, Oxford Brooks and, and he really helped me. He, he's been my supervisor and with COVID, we couldn't do tennis lessons for a long time so we did um, executive coaching lessons and so we had hours and hours and hours of work on it I got to really sort of be thankful for for his input but and he spotted things that I was doing even in coaching him in tennis that mm-hmm. that's exactly what we do in executive coaching there's so many parallels and so he he said to me why didn't you develop this more and at the time I was already working on my psychological coaching with sports people mm-hmm. and so it just sort of developed from there and um, now I'm working with companies, a few down here in York. Um, some I've got clients in London, and um, a few interesting clients, uh, CEOs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked with a top team last week, uh, last year. Uh, top team of three, they were selling their business. Uh, so really, very interesting um, periods in their in their development, and, and and helping them through that, and you know the stress that they're under, and, and, and giving them tools to to deal with the stress better and, and and just giving advice you know and, and, and finding f- getting them to find the way forward and their motivation as we spoke about earlier mm-hmm. and do you find now I mean you, you've spoken so eloquently about um, how you after your 17 match points how you recognized those moments in the game and how you you know work on being in the moment and, and having read a, about coaching but is some of it with hindsight that you look back now and say oh, that's what I was doing yes yeah. definitely yeah. definitely when you reflect 
on mm. things, you have a, a much better view on it. Uh, in fact, that's one of the tools we use is the older, wiser self. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that's exactly what it is when you look back and you think, oh, that. I, I, even just a, a small point, um, uh, and it, it crosses over. So I was coaching, and why are people playing with their strings? Because they, they're moving it to get mm-hmm. it in line, but it has another added advantage because it activates your tactile brain. So when you're doing that and you're feeling it on your fingertips Mm. and it gets you out of worrying that survivor mode, it's like, am I going to win this next point? You know, what what does it mean? You know, et cetera. You want to get yourself into the present and in the zone. And if you you do that, and and it never occurred to me why we were doing it. And and people probably don't realize that's why it helps, but it, it does help occupies your mind on the process better ah okay so um if you don't mind sharing because this has prompted something in my mind now so we did an exercise didn't we where we had to put my forefinger and thumb together so yeah so it's it's a pq rep Mm -hmm. and it's activating one of your senses to a very high level uh, or, or just really engaging it and that shifts the part of your brain that's activated so you're trying to get away from your limbic system, which is your survivor mode, where you will think hypervigilant thoughts, you know, and, and you worry about the future and, and to move it to, to the prefrontal and middle cortex and the empathy circuitry where you will be more in the moment and thinking about your process and what you need to do. Okay, yeah, I was having a conversation about this with uh, one of my clients the other day about that sort of catastrophizing and um, trying to think of the word that she used now but this sort of getting in the circuit of going round and round yeah. and not being able ruminating to, that's it on, ruminating on yeah. negative thoughts yeah. um, that we often get into and that's a way of getting you out of that yeah and it's, it's simple because it's it's just one of your senses so it could be vision hearing touch is the one we spoke about but also breathing you know mm. how good that is to if you breathe properly how that will help you to be more in the moment and more yeah. present and regulating your breathing I, and I know I use that a lot if I'm presenting and it's for me it's such a simple tool that we all have yeah no it's very simple yeah and I think that sometimes it catches people that it's so simple it's yeah. the simplicity of it but it works but it's the awareness, isn't it, in the moment, and it's, it's spotting the moment and, and being able to separate that. For me, one of the sort of light bulb moments for me was being intentional. So spotting in yes. that moment and being able to choose my response exactly. rather than respond. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So let's talk about your positive intelligence because this is the... Would you use it? Would you call it tool? It's bigger than a tool, isn't it? Uh, the, the yeah, format. yeah. No, the um, I, again, what I love about it, it, it was the same simple three steps that I use in the inner game of tennis to tr- mm. to change my uh, performance, and um, it's finding out what your saboteurs are, the things that hold you back, your your limiters. So our strengths, uh, we, we use them so much, we overdevelop them, and then those strengths can actually hold us back. So we talked about hyperachieving, or and, and, and the goal is so important. You want to achieve, you want it, and then it actually holds your performance back because you you're emotionally tied to the outcome. We had and, a long conversation yeah. about that off yeah. mic, didn't we, a few weeks so, ago? So, yeah. So trying to uh, to you know that, mm, and then mm. to calm that part down, and, mm. and you do the PQ rep mm. where you um, get yourself in that 
different frame of mind. Mm -hmm. And then we, we have five tools called Sage tools, mm -hmm. but it's simple things. And you, if you're a salesperson, you'll know what they are. You know, it's, it's empathy, standing in other people's shoes. It's um, uh, exploring, properly exploring, <laughs> which we don't often do because we've got that bias. We want to answer people or, or come up with a good idea when they're talking instead of totally listening to them and understanding them. Uh, and then, then it's just innovate new ideas, navigate to making decisions, and, and then knowing how you normally react, how you normally behave, mm -hmm. and then having that slight change, calming that saboteur down, and then acting. So that's the system, and it's, 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 it's like three points. And, uh, and you can apply it in conflict management, um, stress management, um, persuasion, mm -hmm. and it's a very simple system that you can apply. Um, but that's just one part of the coaching I do. Mm -hmm. uh, this, is, this is the course I deliver, but um, my coaching obviously goes, uh, you know, into very different directions depending on, on what people want. You know, whether it's performance, whether it's um, you know stress management, whether it's relationships. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, it, it's always about the person. Mm -hmm. It's a holistic approach, uh, and it starts with a person and, and their issues and what they want to achieve. So just because I know one of the areas that you're working in is cricket as well yes. at the moment and um, when you see something like Johnny Bairstow's yeah. hit which was just phenomenal was wasn't, great, it? wasn't it? Absolutely um, and being only one off the all-time record as well was yeah. just uh, yeah I mean, what a test match he, it he has been. He came in here years ago. Yeah. Right, okay. Because um, we, we know him from school. And um, yeah, he, he asked me, to, can you believe it? He wanted to get a membership here. And, he, and at that point, he couldn't afford it. So yeah. we went and spoke to the management. And now he's there standing in the middle of, you know, <laughs> Trent Bridge. And, and just got a world at his feet. So, you know, but those those moments happen and today will be another normal day for him you know and will and, it and now that's, that's something that you say well there, you try to be yeah. you try to yeah. have a normal day because next week he's going to have to perform again and you have to you can't be at the top all the time so you have to bring yourself down and then start again and so it'll be interesting to see how he picks himself up and, and how well he performs after this. can he take that confidence that he's gained and use it at Headingley yeah, and how about Joe Root? Because I mean, again, he's had two phenomenal innings, but how much do you think taking the cap, you know, coming out of the yeah. captaincy as, as yeah. do you it's think really that is? Him. Yeah, it's really helped him to, to refocus on just the batting. And um, okay, he didn't do very well in the last innings, but um, he, he'll have a lot more focus on the batting. And, and Stokes, you know, yeah, he's done yeah. well, isn't he? Yeah, and three very different characters very as well, characters. which is uh, interesting as well. So what does the uh, future hold, Marius? What are the plans for the future? Is there a big goal well, still? Um, yeah, there are always goals. And so I'm just trying to work with people and help them uh, to perform better and, um, you know, manage their stress and, and, and move forward. And, and it doesn't really matter at what level, but uh, I, I am working with directors and, and CEOs and, and I really enjoy that. But also sports people yeah. at the highest level. Uh, I'm working with a few uh, of them currently, but I'd like to expand that and, and, and just try and teach them 
the things that you know that I've learned over the years pass that on you know because um, you can make life so difficult if you if these blockers are stopping you yeah. and uh, and if you can overcome that it, you know you can your performance can improve so much and do you coach your daughter <laughs> yeah, I coach a little bit. I've got two twin boys as well, so okay. I coach them as well. So, and they're quite um, acceptable, you know. So some people, uh, kids don't listen to their dad or whatever. Exactly. They're quite good, so uh, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. really enjoy that. And do they play tennis? Yeah, they play tennis. Yeah, fantastic. So, great. Um, well, thank you so much for today. Um, I'll be honest and open as I always am. We've got to sort of close the conversation yes. because we're in a studio and I think there's going to be yeah. an aerobics class be, any moment. We're going to be thrown so out in a minute. We're going to be thrown <laughs> out. But thank you so much, Marius. I feel like we could talk all day, but just your insights into, you know, playing at that height, you know, the height of performance and how you translate that into business, you know, absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Oh, great. Some uh, really interesting questions. I really appreciate it, Deborah. Brilliant. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed today's conversation and I'd love you to join in the conversation as well. The best way to do that is through social media and I can be found at Instagram and Twitter at DO underscore impact. If you'd like to sign up for my newsletter or learn more about my monthly membership, The Impact Club, please visit the website at deborahogden.com. enjoyed this episode of on brand with i would so appreciate it if you would rate review and subscribe to help other people know we exist thanks for tuning in and i'll see you on the next episode thanks for listening to on brand with it was hosted by deborah ogden and produced by me anthony short this has been a short stories production